Now, the past few weeks, we've been talking about the fact that Christianity brings us into conflict with the world. And Jesus, this should not be a surprise to anyone, because Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. And so Peter has been calling Christians to live in righteousness and in righteous opposition towards evil, towards worldliness, um, even if that opposition means um, suffering for righteousness' sake. Even if it means suffering for righteousness' sake, we are reminded that Christian suffering is the path that Christ blazed from suffering to glory. So if Christ is the way, his, the path that he blazed is the way that we follow. So Christ pioneered this path of suffering to glory. And so the question today is, how will this suffering to glory work out in our lives? And there's much we could say about that. Uh, but Peter is going to give us sort of more on-the-ground uh, feel for how enduring in the Christian life, in the face of worldliness, what that's going to be like. What will that taste like? What will that feel like for us? And Peter clarifies this and calls us to take on a certain mind. So if you would read with me 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6 through 6 today. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has, ceased, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here Peter says we are to arm ourselves with the same sort of thinking that Christ had. Being a disciple is to have the mind of Christ, to share the sufferings of Christ, to have the perspective of Christ, to take on the character of Christ. And so today specifically Peter is saying to arm yourself with the same sort of thinking that Christ had when he pioneered the path of suffering in opposition to a hostile world to glory. That's the path, and that's the only way. Since Christ suffered for righteousness' sake and took the path of suffering to glory, we're to arm ourselves with this mindset. So the question that I'm asking today is how? How then? Do, does one, does a Christian arm himself or herself with the same sort of thinking, this 
suffering to glory path of Christ-likeness? Well, first of all, we see that arming ourselves with Christ-like thinking means choosing, choosing to live for the will of God and not for self-gratification. Making the choice not to live a life of self-gratification and self-fulfillment and choosing rather to live for the will of God. That's the first and fundamental step in adopting the mind of Christ. Arm yourself with the same sort of thinking for who has, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does ceased from sin mean? It sounds like sinless perfection, I, I realize to some of you. Well, what does that mean? That we'll never sin again? That is assuredly not what Peter is saying, for he is actually exhorting Christians who have suffered already to discontinue sinning. So the, the sheer fact of his exhortation shows us that he doesn't mean that those who suffer actually don't sin at all. What he's saying is that whoever has brought themselves into opposition with the world's values and in opposition to the world's vanity and chooses to suffer by bringing themselves into that opposition, that is the man who no longer lives for, for sinful passions, but for the will of God. So whoever chooses to live in conflict with a sinful world, even if it means persecution and suffering on my account, that's the man who has ceased to live a sinful lifestyle. So the idea Peter is giving us is Whoever has chosen to this path of suffering to glory has ceased from a sinful pattern of life. And Christians who choose this life of Christ-likeness instead of self-indulgence no longer associate with sinful patterns of living. I think this is parallel to the idea in Romans 6 verse 7 where the Apostle Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So there's, there's a realm change when you become a Christian. You have ceased from not only the pattern of life, but the power of sin which held you in your former ways, because now... You are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're no longer enslaved to sin. The chains are broken. So when it says you're free in Scripture, that means you're free from your self-indulgent and selfish and death trajectory ways. One commentator said, Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. Although believers will never be totally free from sin in this life, when believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they show that their purpose in life is not to live for their own pleasures, 
but according to the will of God and for his glory. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has chosen this path of Christ-like suffering in conflict to the world. That's the man or woman who has ceased from a sinful pattern of life. Of life. And that is why the Apostle Peter says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So now, there's a reorientation. We talked about this yesterday in Theological Focus Group. Repentance and conversion, discipleship, involves a reorientation of the entire person. So that now, I no longer live for my own lusts and passions or my own from my own perspective, but I have reoriented myself so that God and his kingdom is now my focal point. And that was Jesus' point when he said, seek first the kingdom, and then everything else will be added. You seek first the kingdom. I shared with the men uh, yesterday one of the one of my favorite quotes. Uh, this is a John Piper quote. I'm sure I've said it before from the pulpit. Um, but when you become a Christian, it means dying to your former ambitions. It means dying to yourself. That's why Jesus was very serious about that. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Last week, we, we met, I mentioned that this was the cross means self-abandonment to God. Deny yourself. And so John Piper said, God is not the means to achieve the goals you had before you were a Christian. He is the goal now that you are a Christian. So to be a, a convert or a disciple is to reorient your entire life towards the will of God for your life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Christianity means a reorientation towards God and Christ's kingdom. Um, how can we be a God-centered church? Yesterday in men's group, we talked about being a God-centered church where the will of God is our focal point. Um, one of the one of the passages that we read in that conversion book is he mentioned that if we change our perspective from ourselves to God and his kingdom then we will not be thinking as thinking of the church as a stage for our potential but we'll be thinking of the church as a people to serve now, I'm, I want to talk specifically to those who may be elders at some point in the next year or two. You should see eldership, or if I've talked to you about eldership, or if you desire eldership, you should see eldership not as you being elevated to some position of grandeur, or, or elevated to some position 
of It is a position of authority, but it's not a position where people look at you and say, wow, this man has attained something that I haven't attained. That is, that's not the point of eldership, to be a little piece on the mantle of the church. The point of eldership is a call to serve. It's a call to lay down your time, to give the church your mental bandwidth and your spiritual energy for the sake of the congregation and his glory. That's God-centered eldership. And if we're going to have a plurality of eldership in this church, which we are headed in that direction, it's going to be a plurality of elders who do not live for themselves or their own passions, but for the will of God. And even in their eldering, and their call to eldering, they will know that it's not a step of grandeur, but it's a step of service. That is indeed what eldership is. That's God-centered eldership. And I think also to parents, I was thinking about this in terms of our parenting. How do we talk to our children about the future? so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. How do we talk to our children about their ambitions, what they want to be when they grow up, what their dreams are? It's great. My son wants to be a baseball player. Elise, Elise has a very interesting cross-section of employment opportunities that she's thinking about. She wants to be a missionary, a mom. a mom, or a trapeze artist. So, in that order. In that order. So that's that's something that she's thinking about, and we could say that's great, you know. But first and foremost, as you, with all you're getting, get understanding. With all you're getting. The question should be not how can I use this life to fulfill my dreams. It's how can, how can I most fully embrace God's kingdom in my life? How can you, young man, young woman, how can we teach our children, how can we speak words to our children that encourages them, well, to serve the Lord? What, what, Regardless of jobs, regardless of employment, are the tone that we speak in, the words we use, the visions we cast for them, should be a life of self-sacrificial service where God is our goal. Your kingdom come, your will be done. A man-centered theology asks, how can God aid me in my ambitions? A God-centered theology asks, how can I apply myself to God's kingdom? How can your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done in my life? I think that's a useful framework to talk about our children's future. So the first way we adopt the mind of Christ is... Um, is choosing, is by choosing to live for the will of God and not for self-gratification. The second way 
we adopt the mind of Christ here is by refusing to capitulate to cultural pressure. Peter says, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The time that was right for sin in your life, that was sufficient for debauchery, is before you were a Christian. That was the appropriate time of idiocy and death. Right Now that you are a Christian, it is no longer appropriate. The time does not suffice for sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, and lawless idolatry. Right? That's your pre-conversion life of spiritual death and hopelessness. A life of spiritual death and hopelessness is a, an appropriate life for sinfulness. That's appropriate. But that time is past for us, church. He mentions a few choice sins here. Sensuality. It just means a bent towards unrestrained pleasure, usually sexual pleasure. And every time we walk in the mall, we have to cover Wesley and Elisa's eyes when we walk by certain stores because it, there are women scantily dressed, you know, like it, it, sensuality is always coming at you. It's being thrown in your direction in this culture. But the time has passed for us to live in sensuality. Passions means deep desire or lust. Drunkenness is overindulgence with alcohol. Orgies. You can explain that to your children after service. Drinking parties. Lawless idolatry. Interesting. The... Okay, why are these things wrong? Because they twist the purposes of God. They twist sexuality. And they take some aspect of God's creation and use it as a drug so as to lose control of the mind. In order that their mind would give them justification for pleasing their bodies without restraint. Does anything good happen with drinking parties? <laughs> right? Do you? I mean, has anyone ever been to a drinking party and woken up the next morning and say, "Well, that was great. I'm, I'm glad I had a drinking party, and I just woke up at 11 a.m. and, and I, and I have a headache, and and who knows what I did last night." Interestingly, interestingly, sensuality and passions, that's sexual, orgies, sexual, then he says drunkenness and drinking parties. Very interesting that drugs, drunkenness, and sexuality almost all the time are associated with one another. Very interesting. 
how drunkenness and sexuality is always closely associated with the other. Or drugs. I wonder why that is. It's because the drugs or the drunkenness gives your mind justification for doing what the body wants to do. If your body is bent towards unrestrained pleasure, the only thing that's going to hold it back is the mind, your better sense. But if you lose the better sense through alcohol or drugs, you've justified yourself in that thing. Paul talks about in Philippians 3.19, unbelievers, and he characterizes them as people whose God is their belly. Their God is their belly. And in 2 Peter, Peter says, these people who do these kinds of things are like animals of instinct. They operate off instinct, not the mind. Now, after mentioning all of these, all of these sins, sexual and drunkenness and idolatry, which is just a wanton and profane life, Peter says something very interesting. He says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They, are, they're they could be appalled that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, in principle, why is that? Why would somebody involved in drunkenness passions and sensuality, just unrestrained pleasure, why is it that they would be surprised that you don't have the same values or you don't join them in the same foot of debauchery? Why are they surprised? It's because sin does not want to be analyzed. It wants to be joined. And that is why if it is not joined, it will retaliate with outrage. This is why, and I'm sure you've seen videos or maybe you've experienced it yourself, if you talk about abortion, if you speak against abortion, there's no argument. There's no argument against it. It's outrage against you for dare speaking against the pro-choice ethic. Or transgender advocates, if you speak against transgenderism, or I'm sure you've seen that before too, they respond not with logic and reason or by, by arguing with respect to the way the universe actually works or biology actually works but they will respond with outrage and vitriol for the most part because sin wants to be joined and it refuses to be analyzed. Outrage, not argument, has become the way to assert yourself in our culture. And they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. We, we do live in a time, as many other cultures throughout history have, that is increasingly calling good evil and evil good. 
abortion is no longer the ending of the life of an infant. It's liberation. We are, we, we are expected to celebrate Drag Queen Story Hour at the library. And they're surprised and incensed that there would be people outside disagreeing with them. A store we, we, we used to shop at, we would go to the checkout line and there was a transgender gentleman Always, almost always at the checkout line when we went there in Middletown. And he was, he's about six feet tall and he wears a long dress with makeup on. And we are, we are expected to just walk by him like nothing is out of the ordinary. This is perfectly normal. There's just a massive man in a, in a long dress and makeup. And, and pearls and, and, and high heels, yes. And so, I do, I, we should, I hope you know the heart of this church is to love those people, to call their sin a sin, but focusing on this point Peter is making that they're surprised because it's become so commonplace. And I'm supposed to walk down the aisle with my six-year-old daughter and expect, like, this is perfectly normal that this massive man is here dressed up like a woman. They will be surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. So no matter, here's the main point, all of that, no matter how much pleasure is being held out or outrage is endured, adopting the mindset of Christ means not joining them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, I've mentioned homosexuality. I've mentioned sensuality, orgies, transgenderism. Some listening to this may struggle with small sins. Some may struggle with big sins like the ones I've mentioned here. If you struggle with grievous sin, know that Satan wants you and you are very precious to him and he would have you. So, what you can do if you struggle with grievous sins, like the ones mentioned here, or worse, nothing should, nothing should surprise us because we know that Satan seeks those whom he wants to devour, and he will try to devour them entirely. But what you can do, O struggler, is... Cut the lifeline of sin off. Cut the lifeline off. Don't, don't, don't just try to resist when you've placed it before you. Cut off the lifeline. One scholar says, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. 
It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when other earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even, even eagerly welcomed. Every Christian has the responsibility to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and cut them off without pity. So, please cut off the lifeline if you struggle with grievous sins. Now, if you don't, if you struggle with you know, most of you, not all of you, but most of you will struggle with small sins. And that's perfectly adequate for the enemy as well. Because if you put enough straws on a camel's back, it'll break his back eventually. And so what you need to, what we all need to do is realize when Satan is leading us down a certain path or being led down a certain path. That's why I, I suggested that book, Screwtape Letters, because he's so good at picking out little things that Satan will try to get you to do. I just listened to a passage last night, and the author, C.S. Lewis, giving voice to a demon, said, what we can do with our patient is make him do nothing. We don't need to make him do grievous sins. But we can make him do nothing instead of something useful for the, for the enemy's kingdom. And that by, by that he means God's kingdom. We can make him sit in a cold room with a fire dimming and just stare and do nothing. Depressed about his marriage, or his children, or his job. We can make, that will be sufficient. Just make him do nothing. It's little things like that. Sins of omission. Sins of laziness. Those kinds of things. Satan will get you either way. He'll try to get you either way, whether it's big sins or small sins. Either one is leading you down the same path. Second, thirdly, and lastly, so we put on the mind of Christ by not living for self-gratification, but for the will of God. We put on the mind of Christ also by um, refusing or resisting the flood of debauchery that the world is being carried along with. Lastly, um, we put on the mind of Christ by living with eternity in view. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judge in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I understand this is a strange passage where it's, it's kind of hard to parse out exactly what Peter means, but it seems to be a, an answer to a possible objection. Some in, in the surrounding culture, and even today, have kind of what, almost like what Ecclesiastes says seems to be the case. 
The righteous die, the pagans die. Those who live a life of rampant evil, they go to the grave. And those who spent their whole life trying to do God's will, they go to the grave as well. And so it seems that the evil and the good die alike, and that your Christianity, Peter and congregation, doesn't make any difference in the long run. We all die. We all go to the grave. Peter's answer to that is that the wicked will give an account because God is, God is judge of not just the living, but the dead. They will give an account to him who is judged, ready to judge the living and the dead. And therefore, this is why the gospel, verse 6, was preached to those who are now dead at this time. Because they will be judged. And by responding to the gospel, they will be made alive by God's Spirit. So even though they will, are judged in the flesh the way all humans are, all men will die. All men still have the curse of Adam. Whether or not you're a Christian, your physical body will die. But you can live by God's Spirit if you've responded to the gospel before that death. The Spirit is, is referred to as the Holy Spirit is the one who affects life in the Trinity. He is the one who mediates Christ's victory and brings life. It is he who gives life. Romans 1.4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 8.10 But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. So it seems to me that the point of Peter's confusing statement is that Death is not an escape from God's judgment. Nor is it a discontinuation of God's promises. God will judge the living and the dead. And the gospel was preached to many people. And even though they are now dead, they may live in the spirit. And that's why the gospel is preached to them. Congregation, uh, we talk about this life a lot. Even in preaching, we talk about this life a lot. But a Christian is ultimately must have eternity in their mind because there will be a judgment. And every Christian and pagan will go before the judgment seat of God. Revelations 2, Revelation 2, verse 11 through 15 gives us a vision of this judgment. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We have a picture here of the grave and the sea giving back the dead that are in them so as to face judgment. Some will be The judgment of some and the fate of some will be determined according to what Christ has done. That's the book of life. The others will be judged according to what they had done in the body. And we see that anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. So death My point for bringing that passage up, although we could talk about a lot of its moving elements, the main point I'm trying to make here is death does not escape God's judgment. The sea will give up the dead and the grave will give up the dead to to God's judgment. And nor does it negate God's promises. Death is not the end for a Christian. But if your name is written in the book of life, you will, be, you will enter his glory. So judgment for a Christian means joy. It means joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Life is, life is short. And I realize... I realize this about every couple months. I, realize, I look at my life and say my life is half over. And some of you have that same realization, some more, some less. But it is, it's amazing how fleeting life is. And that's why, congregation, the, the key to joy in life is to live with eternity in your mind. Dallas Willard's mom, who is, who is dying on her deathbed, said to her father before she died, just before she died, she said, keep eternity before the eyes of the children. I love that request from a mother. Keep eternity before the eyes of the children. Because there will be a judgment and there will be a joy for you. Um, and look on to Jesus, because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he went, he, and he took the path, and he pioneered the path of suffering to glory. Let me read that passage, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The gospel is good news. It is good news because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the wages of those sins are death. And without Christ, we will die. And we will die a second death. But with Christ and with the good news, the penalty is paid for. And we have a God who is risen from the dead and promises to share his life with us and his resurrection with us and promises to take us to his kingdom so that when your eyes shut for the last time on earth, they will open again in a place where men live and God reigns. So today, if you are here, and you have not placed faith in Christ, now is the time to repent and believe. And I would love to talk with you after service today about more what that looks like. Or you could grab some other members or people in the congregation. I'm sure they could point you in the right direction as well.